Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist. I travel the world helping companies and governments think about the future and where we're headed in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And I'm honored today to have a great friend on the podcast. He's a progressive thinker. He's one of Canada's most passionate evangelists and transformation experts on the now of work. His name's Rocky Ozaki, and for years he's preached that technology, a sharing economy and a connected generation would dramatically shift the way that companies operated. And that was gonna happen a lot faster than most were predicting. So this is an essential conversation right now. Rocky, we've been friends for a long time. I think we met at an event and we, we shook up, the, I think it was Disrupt HR, and we both yeah. shook up the room you're a disruptor, I'm a disruptor, and I want to talk about the future of work. I mean, what's going on, man? I mean, we've, we've had the pandemic, COVID-19, it's ripped through our economies um, mm-hmm. globally. Let's look, let's look down into Canada. People still aren't opening up. Our economy's sort of uh, crawling into existence again. We're, we're heading into the summer months. But, you know, there's some interesting things that, that we talked about in preparation for this call. And the one that hit me, and I think we should start right in, right with the gut punch, is that you said that the paradigm of work is dead. What does that mean, Rocky? So, I mean, God, where where do you want to start? Like, let's think of all these companies that failed to embrace this idea that the future work was coming. And they said, we don't need to go remote working. We can't control our staff. Uh, what is this about transparency in the workplace and diversity and equity? You go on and on and on. We got complacent. We were in this industrial mindset, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And guess what happened? A pandemic freaking hit. And it forced us. It forced us to, re, like, to challenge all of our assumptions. And now companies that said, it would take us a year to go remote. I have a client who actually said this. It would take us a year. Their IT team said, yes, maybe we'll go remote. It'll take a year. They did in three days. Right. And so it's like, and then secondly, and then they get to remote work. And I'm not by any way professing that we're all going to be remote and, and, and contingent workers in the future because there's something about human connections we could talk about later. But the reality is, is that so many companies realize that, oh my gosh, we can get stuff done remotely. We don't have to control our staff all the time. We don't have to be, you know, hanging over the micromanaging. And so just from that one aspect, wow, we're awakened. Then you start looking at some of these companies that sadly had to lay off people or went remote and thought, you know, we can't do as much as we could before, and now they're actually more productive. So I talk about the paradigm of work, I'm talking about organizational bloat that many larger organizations and scaling companies did, created layers and layers, and all of a sudden you've got these bullshit jobs that people aren't even contributing, and it got, all got exposed. And so there's just so many aspects of work that have been exposed because of a COVID that no one had a chance to plan for and premeditate and it's really exposed to truth, which is that most companies are grossly inefficient uh, in how they work. And this is fascinating to me. I, I've spoken about everyone from like Kyocera to Valve to uh, a number of different companies. I, I think Zappos as well, um, you know, breaking down the hierarchies, making people more accountable, um, making people make decisions quickly, acting on those decisions. And it's not perfect. And it's a little messy. But as you say, 
you know, what would take a year of, pol you know, policy changes, decision making, five VPs reviewing it over several months. Oh my gosh. Converse conversations, a hundred keynote um, presentations that need to come from various levels of, uh, of, yeah. of the organization. Uh, right when the CEO then goes, okay, is this the right thing to do? And like a group of four people say, yes, this is the right thing to do. And yeah. I mean, this is this is this paradigm of work is dead because mm -hmm. everyone was doing it incorrectly. Was there anyone doing it the right way before the I, pandemic? Oh God, uh, before the pandemic, I would say for I mean, what's the time frame? A decade at least. The modern companies knew this. So you yeah. talk about the cross-functional collaboration piece. Is like okay, well, how, companies winning today? What have they done? They actually rallied their entire organization against a common we call them an enemy, right? Is COVID. So now the hierarchies broke down, like you said, they had to think more agile. Let's just roll out that MVP and test and iterate, like curbside pickups, a perfect example of how fast you could roll something out. But historically, it was a business plan, like you said, that took three months to write, executive sponsorship, and then they get a budget and nine months later they start. They did it in a week. And so this is what companies for at least a decade in technology, multiple decades in technology companies had been doing because if they didn't get customers, they lost funding. They, they were out of business. And so I would say in the last five years, for sure, Nick, that we've started to see enterprise, even legacy enterprise, start to adopt these, these new ways of working from transparency and breaking down hierarchy to the cross-functional collaboration, investing in innovation, like true innovation, being agile, creating a sense of belonging, all these things that have now proven to work through COVID, companies had been doing, but I would say, and I just wrote a piece on this, I'd say it was less than 5% of companies in North America were before COVID. Now when we come out of COVID, I'm guessing at least 50% of them are gonna realize this is the new way of work and they're just 10 years behind. Yeah, and the rest are gonna relapse, right? Potentially. Oh, and, and you know what'll happen? They'll die. So like, I talk about these archetypes of corporations. So when we go in and transfer companies, we put them in four archetypes, Nick. One is the fast or the first mover, right? You, we've always heard of SpaceX, the first mover, right? And General Fusion and these, these quantum computing companies are all first movers. Then you've got the fast follower, right? And they're gonna win, they're innovative, but they're actually agile, they have the muscle memory, the mindset throughout their entire organization to embrace change, to want change, to have a growth mindset, and be able to pivot quickly. They're gonna be okay. Then we have this other archetype called the impeded, right? So these are companies that knew the future work was coming, that know there's a new normal, but they have valid constraints, whether it's cash or leadership alignment or organizational bloat, whatever it is. And the fourth archetype is those that are in denial. So all these companies survived pre-COVID. As COVID passes, the in denials are dead. I will actually go out there and I can pinpoint some cups and say, you will die in two months because you are so far behind and you've got the blinders on. Those that were impeded, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. They're going to have to double down on what we've learned through being agile and more innovative and all those things that we just spoke about. If they don't try to become more of a fast follower, they're going to find themselves in a world of hurt in the next couple of years. And so this is to me, everyone needs to learn how to be a fast follower in this post-COVID world. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, I always talk about um, the idea of bionic companies, you know, the companies that develop behavioral, cognitive and network capital within yes. their organization. The agility, the ability to actually invest in people. Isn't that a wild idea? Let's invest <laughs> in, in our employees. Let's invest in new technologies and new it's ways crazy. of working. 
We're talking yeah. Amazon and, and, and Facebook, even though they're, they're pretty dastardly right now. We're talking uh, companies uh, that, that I really like, like Microsoft and Google. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking SpaceX. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the weekend, we saw astronauts on a private space flight being taken to the International Space Station and part of the rocket, the boosters, landing to be reused again. And That's yesterday, cool. SpaceX did its next launch and launched a bunch of satellites, Starlink satellites. That wasn't even a week. I mean, and I remember watching the, uh, the Nat Geo video of the first landing of the rocket, and I burst into tears because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's that absolute complete shift yeah. in the world. It's just like a man landing and uh, putting his foot on the moon, and it's just like a woman that will put her foot on the moon as part of the Artemis mission and establish you know, a colony on the moon. And you know what's really interesting about the story you just told is that your following get a lot of them get this and they inspire. And I hope there are people listening who actually don't believe a lot of this to be true, who are kind of like those in denial and those impeded ones. Because here's the fact that this, this is not a fact, this is my belief, is that pre-COVID, this future was coming anyway. And it was like you asked, where was it happening? Well, this is, has been happening. This new paradigm of work has been happening forever. Exponential technologies have been rolling out throughout the globe for a long time, but we've had our blinders on because we're so many of us are so complacent, particularly in Vancouver and Canada, where I am, is like we celebrate how beautiful this place is and this and that. And while the rest the world is just going light years ahead of us. The pandemic, in my view, is the single greatest force in our generation to expedite all these things that you've just talked about. So this SpaceX is just one example. The whole world is saying, oh my gosh, we better start automating more. We better start doubling down more on tech. We better be start doubling down also on our people. That's all part of this narrative. We're not going to move at the pace we did pre-COVID again, in my view. Because these fast followers, these first movers are going to push this envelope even faster than before. This is what investors are going to be looking for. It's what governments are going to be looking for. And so anyone who says this is sci-fi and it's regulated to a small percentage of the economy, I call bullshit on them. And I'm going to say that you watch what happens in the next couple of years that we're all going to be doubling down on this new world that we're all going to live in, this new normal. Which, by the way, I think can be a better world than the one was before. Yeah, and I, I have to agree. And as a futurist looking out 5, 10, 20 years, this is, this is amazing. The pace that the we've pace. got right now, That's right? right? We, we're, not just, we're not just sprinting to make up time and then suddenly resting. We're, we're kind of getting, we, we had to sprint a little bit. And now we're sort of in a steady pack, jogging, jogging the, the multi-thousand mile marathon, in yeah. a way, in, into the future. And that to me is interesting, but how, how can companies keep that pace up? Because it's going to be tough. Okay, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that, right? Because so many people say there's no way you can maintain this pace. We're fatigued, we're dying, we're like, this is not sustainable. Well, I go back again to the old paradigm of work. 20 to 40% of white collar, so blue collar, I haven't quite got the number yet, but in my business, I've been able to prove that 20 to 40% of white collar employees are inefficient. Okay, and so when you think about pace, it's because you're thinking about the context of how fast you could move things before. But let's just break this down quickly. I put work into three buckets, Nick, that people have either keep the light on activities, they've got balanced scorecard activities, and they've got discretionary time. Okay, and so keep the light on stuff for like emails and meetings and responding to customers, literally turning the lights on. In that time, that's where the bulk of your inefficiency is. BS meetings that no one wants to go to, the wrong people are in the room, you've defaulted to an hour when it should be 20 minutes, uh, you're making poor decisions, there's no action items. Emails, 
28% of people's time, the average white collar worker spends 28% of their day on emails. Just to do the math, like anyone listening, look at all the emails you've sent and received today, multiply that by 1.1 minutes, and that's how long you're spending on emails. BSing, like BCCing people, CCing people that don't need to be, I can go on and on and on. Think about reports that you're generating that no one reads anymore. The make work that you're doing, like all of this. And so the story is this, is if you actually audit your work, if you actually clear all the noise out of there, you've got probably an extra day a week to, to vote towards innovation and pace and doing things that you should have been doing anyway. And so the pace, number one, I think there's a lot of aspects to it. Number one, you got to rethink work completely, get rid of the noise, get people to opt into the work that they love, enable it through the right technologies. And there's, so there's a lot of components to this, Nick, but in, 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 in some, I guess, what I'm saying is that this is replicable. And part of it is framework. So, I'm, you know, as I digress a bit, like I'm a big fan of OKRs and, and sprinting. And I think sprinting, a two-week sprint using a scrum methodology and even non-tech teams hyper-focuses people on what really matters. So when you start to get frameworks in place, when you start to change the mindset, get rid of the noise, you can move as fast as we did through COVID, but in a planned way in which actually your people are working less, they have better quality of life, and you're getting better business outcomes. It's absolutely possible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and why can't we start to think about four-day weeks? And, you know, these ideas, in four days, we can, be hugely, we can be hugely driven. We can get so much done. And sure, not, maybe not 100% of the workforce can, can do just four-day weeks. But why don't, why don't we just have a whole bunch of people make that choice that work super hard, eight hours a day, and have a quality of life that, that, exactly. that, that, that feeds back into their passion of working and drive uh, right. and whatever. It's, it's kind of interesting when we think about this. I mean, I, I live in Toronto. I live next door to a brewery. It's amazing. Shout out to Henderson Brewing. And they've tripled their business in the past two months. Tripled their business. They're literally, uh, their tap room where they'd have people in for drinks, it's gone. Um, because it's, at, it's filled from the floor to the ceiling with cases of beer and that they're shipping out in their delivery service that they didn't have before. They're brewing 24-7. They're going faster. And, and restaurants have got on top of things. And these businesses that could have failed and, and, and really fallen to the wayside have done so because the people haven't been willing. And the people are every yes. single worker. Right? Yes. Yes. And so that again, rallying people. So I'm, I was wanting to stop before I was going to mention the four day work week too. Like let's yeah. not go much further into that. People should research it. It's the studies are coming back, not just from New Zealand and Microsoft and Tokyo. Like there's so many examples of this, but let's talk about that brewery for a second. So they're being fast followers. There's a couple of things that are happening here. Number one is that, you know, they're, they're challenging all their previous assumptions. This is what that we have to do through COVID. We thought people needed to come into our restaurant to eat. Well, maybe there's another option like delivery. If you know what business you're in and the problems that you're trying to solve for your customer, this is a time in which companies can actually thrive. And I'm not a behavioral science, and you probably know more than, than I do, Nick, but there's this thing called the habit discontinuity theory or hypothesis. And in a time of crisis or when your life is turned upside down, like through COVID or a world war, whatever it is, people are more likely to change or break habits or try new things. 
And so these modern companies are going fast, but they're also saying, let's throw away all of our assumptions. Let's start throwing out some innovative ideas that try to solve the problems our customers actually want. And guess what? People are going to try it because of this time of crisis, this habit discontinuity theory. And so the brewery is a perfect example of companies that have realized that. And if we just riff on breweries, there's two other things that I've seen in the market. Some breweries going, when we started to run out of hand sanitizer, their core competency was, was with alcohol and they have these, these distilleries, they could, they could um, produce them. And so they did a community thing and they started to produce hand sanitizers. Then you start to see some other innovative things around curbside pickup. Or these, have you heard of, I don't know if you've heard of whizzing, but anyway, there's all these things are happening in the brewery space that are saying, oh my gosh, this is actually a time to seize the opportunity. This is not all doom and gloom through, through COVID. And to me, that's again, all goes back to that modern mindset of Brazilian organizations and this new paradigm of work. Even from breweries to banking, I mean, we, we had banks that in a, in a matter of a week suddenly created all of these products to protect workers to, to get business loans out to people, whatever, on their own steam. Obviously, with the mandate from government, they had to be in the game. And, and clearly, they're going to make some money eventually from, from this, this exposure that they're, they're putting out there. But on the flip side, you've now got the old white leaders stepping yeah. forward and, and, and literally going on the news and saying, you know what, I don't think we need our officers anymore. I think that we mm. can just operate without officers. And for me... It's like seeing someone declare the end, the end of their, their, their working culture and enjoyment of working for that company and security and, yeah. and so many different parts of life. So yeah. there's a lot of knee jerks and there's a lot of assumptions that, that are coming to bear today that I think are fundamentally wrong about what people think the future is going to be. You know, a decade ago, when you, when you pulled global CEOs, what was stressing them besides shareholder value? automation and these pesky entitled millennials, right? And so everyone was saying that the future work is all these robots taking over, et cetera. And I totally, now's not the time to debate this, but I totally dispel, I think actually automation and robots is actually going to create a more human experience. And so let's go back to your banking example. We're all going to eliminate the office. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Because even through before COVID, companies that we helped to go remote, when they started it, 100% of their employees went remote at least one or two days a week, all of them. Guess what happened after three months? By three months, on, at least in my studies, or not my studies, but with my companies that I've consulted with, only 30% work remotely on a, regular, on a very regular basis. Why? Because it was always about choice. This was not about Rocky wanting to work in his cowboy jammies at home every day. It was this fact that if I didn't feel like going to the office, I didn't want to fight the commute, if I wanted to see, walk my daughter to school, if I wanted to get into deep work, give me a choice. Just allow me to do what I do and get shit done versus controlling me to come into the office. So the first thing is, it's about choice. The second thing we're learning, and you're going to learn post-COVID, is this, is that we actually like to be around people. <laughs> it's like, and so remote is awesome. It's going to reduce the cost and burden for us as individuals and for organizations, and we're going to prove we can get stuff done online, but it won't replicate the human experience. And so people will want to go back to the office either to collaborate, to socialize, to build human connections, whatever it is. I don't in any world suggest unless you're like a tech company fully distributed and you don't, you know, there's some, some use cases for it. But I think those companies you talk about, Nick, there's going to be an, a need for that office for sure post-COVID. Yeah. And, you know, it might be flexible and it might not have seats for every employee. That's right. 
But you know what? If, if you empower the employees, you give them accountability, there's transparency of data, you know what they're doing. I, I worked with a company, it was incredibly progressive, it was like 20 years ago, and it was built out of uh, a bunch of fellows at MIT. And, uh, and uh, uh, an amazing friend of mine, Mike, and he's like a technology leader and he's done a bunch of startups and whatever. Um, he had this team, these three developers, and they were like the best. And I went and I was working in Cambridge, Massachusetts in this amazing company. And these guys would walk in at like 11.30. About 11.50, they'd be like, hey, should we go for lunch? I'm like, sure. And, uh, and, then, <laughs> and I'm from the UK, right? And I'm seeing this very strange behavior. Anyway, we go for a two-hour lunch, and we come back. Yeah. They work for three hours, and we go we go out to some bars, and we did this repeatedly. And I used to spend a lot of time there in in uh, in, in Massachusetts, uh, just across the bridge from Boston and Cambridge. And my friend said this, and it was incredibly prophetic. He said, "I don't care what they do, because when they do what they need to do, they're the best, and they deliver on time, and my boss is happy." and we can make money as a business. And these, these were just guys that, when the crunch came, they did it, but they were so good. And they, they didn't have to sit there pretending to work or throwing pens in the air yeah. or pencils but into I the ceiling. I presume though, it was very clear what the outcomes were, what their objectives yeah. were, how they're gonna measure success. And if you can nail those down as an organization, I completely agree. It's about yeah. you. And, and so, yeah, we, it, it's so dead. Like this whole industrial mindset of work nine to five, Monday to Friday, it, is, it has been dead for so long. And this to me is just so refreshing that companies are finally un, you know, unfreezing from, that, uh, uh, from those constraints. How do we, I mean, you've talked about white collar work and you've skirted around blue collar and it's really yeah. tough because let's get into blue collar work. Oil and gas workers, people that work in nascent industry, people that work in meat processing plants, people that work on farms, uh, people whose, whose lives are going to be disrupted through automation. Yeah. Like the people that are essential workers today, in 10 years' time, they're, they're, there's a, a big possibility that there'll be no human workers in, in mm -hmm. those industries, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Automation, robotic process automation, machinery to do it, robotics and uh, artificial intelligence can really come in to disrupt that. How do we bridge that gap to bring in those blue-collar workers that are clearly smart humans? Yes. That care about what they do. Yes. In, into the white-collar work world so yep. we can create equity and diversity and a completely new way of looking at the world where everyone feeds into an exponential economy. I mean, so there's a lot of, okay, so uh, gosh, if you are to just to sort of riff on this, the first thing I would say is that there is talent within everybody. Right. And so for whatever reason, political, uh, maybe it's because of an immigration status or how you look, whatever it is, you're just, you just weren't born in the right zip code, right? Is that you were forced into a blue collar job. And so I do believe that creativity and, and passion and human contribution is in everyone. And we so often just say blue collar workers are these hands on people who can't think like a white collar worker. I call BS on that 10 days out of 10. Like it's just not true. So number one is like there's going to have to be this upskilling. And we're going to have to allow them and embrace these people to transition into more of this knowledge economy. And so, by the way, what that might that mean? I don't know your views on this, but before COVID, like UBI was something on my radar. Because at some point, we were going to disrupt so many jobs. And if people actually, these blue collars lost jobs and they had no hope, we know what history has told us when people don't have hope. Look what's happening in the United States right now. 
right? You're going to see coups, et cetera. So at what point does some kind of universal basic income, not long-term solution, but help bridge that gap as we transition those people out into these more knowledge jobs? And I don't think it's just knowledge jobs per se, Nick. I really believe as a futurist, and I don't, I'm not a futurist like you, but I dabble. And I feel like at some point, when automation actually has a profound impact that we're saying it's going to, that we're all gonna become more human. And what does that mean? We'd be more creative, more collaborative, more compassionate, have be more critical thinkers. And we all possess that. And so at some point work, that next paradigm of work is going to be, it's not even nine, it's not even like 40 hours, if you talk about 40 work weeks, who knows in the next couple of decades, it might be a 10 hour work week. And we might be doing things completely different in, in how we use these human, human aspects of what we always had within us. But for the last however many hundred years, we're sort of this industrial mindset. So I'm not skirting around it. I just haven't really quite understood it and thought about how the blue collar is going to work that deeply. But I'm certainly something I want to learn more of. And actually, I'd love to throw it back at you and tell me what you think is going to happen to these guys. Okay. I think that... I think that there can only be a shift when we can heal the trauma that's in society. I think uh, what, we're see- what we're seeing down in America, Black Lives Matter, the, the fight for equity, uh, for diversity, for recognition, for the smashing of the white supremacist, the person that doesn't believe that you've got a right to be in this world as a person of color, uh, as a female, um, whatever. I think that we have to heal the trauma in our societies. It's deep and institutional. I think that what I would love to see out of this, and I think progressive nations will do this, is that they will invest trillions of dollars in healthcare, physical healthcare, mental healthcare, and heal that trauma. And the countries that truly try to heal that trauma will realize that the workforce lifts up and the replacement of the old white male guard in so many North American businesses will have to be replaced because fundamentally it's destroyed the world. It's made money for a few people and it's, and it's, and it's commoditized a lot of people. If I have to, I hate the, I hate the term human resources. You know, it's like you're a resource. I'm a resource. You're a number. Oh, we yeah. just laid off X amount of people. Um, how do we lay them off? Oh, we just worked out how much money they were earning and then we chopped the ones that are the most expensive or we worked out how much money they're earning and worked out, worked out the most junior and the people that didn't actually earn the most money for the company and they're all gone. You know, you're, you're, you're siphoning talent away. So this is what I think and it's hard. You know, it's- to this point, and I was told this by a politician in the Canadian, in, in Canadian government in a province, healthcare doesn't win elections. So don't invest too much money in healthcare, invest just enough. Do you, know what, do you know what we found during COVID-19? That we woefully, globally, underinvested in healthcare and preparedness and put all of the workers at risk and hundreds of thousands of people have died and millions of people will continue to die into the future with similar events in these, what I'm calling once per decade pandemics because of a lack of fundamental service to the person on the ground level in the world. And that's a person that's a beautiful soul that needs to be recognized and needs to, and deserves healthcare that's free, mental healthcare that's free, education that's free, 
and a, a world where um, oh there, there's no bias. I mean, this is yeah. a big ask, right, Rocky? It is. But you know what? You, so the trauma you talk about, I mean, that transcends color and age and race and blue and white color. Like I do believe that. I, I agree with that too, that it starts there and trauma is also going to happen through automation and all that. And so I don't think it's just a blue color thing. And I don't think you were suggesting that, but that's everybody. There needs to be a healing for sure. But that's where, where you, we were talking about a paradigm of work shifting the paradigm of life is going to shift or I hope it shifts. And so right. let's go to that healthcare part. Right. And so in Canada, I can speak to Canada cause I've got some healthcare uh, clients and here's the thing. Okay. So in Ontario, Toronto, Ford said one of the things that uh, the mayor is going to go out and do or, or um, yeah, Doug Ford said he was going to go out and say, he, I don't know if I should use his name, but I'm going to fix this hallway medicine. I think it was called it. So this idea or hallway treatment, whatever it was, was that right. was, we didn't invest enough in healthcare and we so bad that people are getting treated in the hallway, right? We put that, we put the homeless people in the hallway. That's literally whatever. how it, this is literally how it's operated. Okay. So now let's just challenge all of our assumptions again, or is anyone being treated in a hallway today through COVID? Because outside of the ICU units, my understanding is almost every hospital across this country are, are pretty slow right now. The emergency rooms are empty. You know, all this, a lot of these elective surgeries are being postponed. The hospitals are actually quite quiet. Okay, so let's just ask ourselves why that is. So did we underinvest in healthcare and PPE of our, of our people and have resources, like you said, their mental health and stuff for people that need it? 100%. But also, did we as a society abuse the system? Why were we going to emergency because we got a sliver in our finger? Why were we going to emergency because I had a fever of 101? We overloaded a system, in my opinion, and it was also, I think, proof of this pandemic is that we took it for granted. Now, what if we could reallocate those dollars that went to healthcare into salt, like to treat the trauma that you spoke of, as opposed to treating these unnecessary visits to the hospital that we've proven we don't need through COVID? Reallocate it, just like we reallocate resources in, in our companies to work that actually is contributing to value to the organization, not make work BS emails and meetings. Mm. That whole paradigm is shifting to in healthcare, and I think our lives reevaluating our priorities. So I, you know, that's how I view that in terms of healthcare. I only think that you're partially correct. Oh, please! I love to hear that. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are, are suffering. People that have died from strokes or affected by strokes and heart attacks and all of these things that haven't gone to a hospital because they've literally, they're too scared to walk in. People are mad because their elective surgeries aren't there. But right now, there's the bandwidth to, to deal with people that have got legitimate problems. So, so I, think, I don't think you're talking about legitimacy of... No. If someone's got a real problem, they get, they get the healthcare, right? Exactly. You, you're literally talking about... Over time, especially in somewhere like Canada and the UK, it's like, oh, um, let's go to accident and emergency. I've only ever been to ER once in my entire life. You know, I'm sure that there are some people that, that end up in there a little bit more. And unfortunately, and again, it comes back down to it, it's going to be the most vulnerable in society that end up in the hospitals. It's, it's not necessarily people like you or I. So there's a recognition of, of an underlying problem. I agree um, with that. I totally do, Nick. And when I'd love to see the stats of how many people died of strokes and heart attack, because it's happening. People have no question are avoiding it. And that's not what I'm talking about. But yeah. if it's gone, what I'm hearing is that literally some of these hospitals are dropping to like 60% or 40% capacity. So what if we got back all those people with the elective surgeries and those who really needed it? I bet you there's still 20% fat there. 
Yeah. I still think as a some number, and let's just throw for shits and giggles, 20% it was being abused. And society recognized that let's not uh, devaluate these frontline workers and the, the, this privilege of going to hospital we had. What if we reallocated that 20% of dollars, which is billions, towards the healing that you talked about? Can maybe that be an awakening for our society around lives, around what's important? I don't know. I, that's getting out of my scope of work. That's just a passionate person talking. So maybe reel me back, Nick, reel me back to what I know best. But that was just my personal opinion on the healthcare piece. Yeah, yeah, this is hot water, Rocky. But no, I, I totally get it. You know, apportioning funds and where do you put that money? And, you know, um, when technology gets better and cheaper and vaccines, have, I mean, what was it in Somalia? A friend of mine was telling me there's a $1 COVID, COVID test in Somalia that was developed. Why, why aren't we buying millions of those those tests in North America? I mean, you know, it's all the technology behind. I'll tell you, yeah. Well, it's it's organized. It's bloat again. It's bureaucracy. If we do if we do what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. And with nothing else through COVID, whether you agree with everything we're talking about today, is that was work not broken? Was society not broken? And I think we can all, most of us, can say yes in both cases. So let's use COVID as the awakening is that we can't do things the way we used to, whether it's in context of working or how we you know, reallocate and distribute funds through government or how we treat each other because of color of skin. We've got to change. And this to me could be a springboard. Okay. I think that that's a perfect point in time because we could probably talk for several days about this, Rocky, with whiteboards and <laughs> pens and solutions and, and big ideas and go out there and, and change the world. And maybe that's what comes next. The paradigm of work life and everything is dead. It's time to recognize that we, we have to help the vulnerable, but it's, it's, help, it's helping the vulnerable be recognized and to take a step forward into, into a bright new world. On the flip side, we need to help these companies do something bigger and better. And you know what? The ones that are going to die, let them die. Um, and I'm talking about companies, not people. Yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to, to leave, leave as a thought here is that not every single company deserves to make it through this. And uh, if they don't make it, it's because of, of poor leadership, bad decisions. Unfortunately, uh, people are going to get affected. But, you know, I believe that all those people are smart and will go on to do many, many great things. Probably the opposite of what they learned during the experiences that have been tough. So Rocky Ozaki, big thinker friend, West Coaster, global warrior on the future of work. Thank you very much. That was my pleasure, Nick. Hope to do it again.